all of our ancestors came from different places, and each one of them have a very different story of how and why they happened to come to Council Bluffs. Today, we all occupy that same piece of earth that they did, but live in vastly different worlds. Though, you know, when we stop and think about it, maybe we got a lot more in common than we might at first think. The cool thing about history is that it helps us understand the many reasons why people think and behave the way they do. So, we got a pretty big question to tackle today, and that is just what does it mean to be human? And how does history weave all of this together? Support for this episode of Accidentally Historic was provided by the Iowa Arts Council, which is a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and by the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange, and all accidentally historic. Welcome to Accidentally Historic, the podcast of the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County. Hi, I'm your host, Richard Warner. Our guests today are Cat Slaughter and Troy Stolt. We got their complete bios in the episode notes to the podcast, but their expertise that's important to today's topic is they both have degrees in anthropology and in history. And we're going to ask them to merge those two together to answer some questions for us. Cat and Troy, welcome aboard. Let me start with what troubles me. In the early part of the 20th century, a group called the Commercial Club, that's kind of the predecessor to the Chamber of Commerce, they wrote an article about the history of Council Bluffs. They said our history started with the arrival of the first European. Now, they did explain that they were aware there were Indians here prior to that, but the Indians didn't really do anything. They didn't develop the land. They built no permanent buildings. They built no bridges. So that's why they decided local history really started with the arrival of the Europeans. Flash forward 100 years or so. It's the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. So I wrote an article about it for our Historical Society member journal, and I had what I thought was a really cool title, 1,912 miles right through the middle of nowhere. Now, before I uh, printed it, I sent it over to a friend of mine, Patricia Labonte, who's director at the Union Pacific Museum, kind of hoping she'd proofread it for me. Well, I don't think Patricia made it past the headline before she called and said, what do you mean by the middle of nowhere? So you're totally disregarding the Native American cultures and settlements that were there? And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm horrified. I knew better. Somehow my 1960s schooling that if it wasn't European history, it didn't matter, must have kind of kicked in when I wrote the article. So my question to you is, how did things change in just a short period of time? Why do we today think what the commercial club wrote a hundred or so years ago is so appalling, yet I'm guessing those people were every bit as intelligent as we are today? How do you explain that? I think there's just been a large shift in the way we see society, especially with anthropology. It's no longer just um, rich white men who are going out into the field and looking only at their own backgrounds. Instead, we're starting to look at the more diverse parts and bringing more people into the field, even by bringing Margaret Mead in, who was kind of the mother of anthropology. We start seeing more information about women, let alone like everybody else that was involved in history. So it's not so much that the public perception has changed, it's just that we've got different people that are the anthropologists. I never thought of that. Well, I think the public perception... What, in, in, 
That's that's iffy. I mean, there are the, the perception in anthropology has changed. When she talked about Margaret Mead being the mother of anthropology, the father was Franz Boas. And the start of anthropology was certainly a rich white men's club. And they had this thought that evolution was linear, even social evolution. So the beginnings of human society was Stone Age, and I quote, uh, put the finger quotes up, Stone Age man, and again, rich white men, women had no part of it, even though they had to be at least 50%. And then the apex of civilization was white European society. So if you were not white and European, and then by extension American, you were a savage. And by the very nature of having a hierarchical, hierarchical society or a linear evolution, that meant that everybody that was not white and European was not as evolved as you were. So indigenous societies, by their nature, just their existence were inferior to white people. And then, of course, once you have that, then you can codify anything you do to them. It reminds me of the mound builders. We know now, obviously, it was Native Americans that were here first, cultivated the whole country. But when anthropologists are first looking at it, like, mm, they're definitely not smart enough to have this progressed of a culture. So there is the mound builders, this crazy other thing that just no longer exists because it couldn't have been the Native Americans that were here for years building their own societies and things like that. Even on the East Coast, it was very matriarchal society. And then it splits off into other areas, which, of course, we can't talk about at that time when we were doing all the research. And I was watching a documentary last night, because that's what I do. <laughs> and um, they brought up Nazi um, anthropologists, which really <laughs> focus on the racial evolution. And I think that's probably some of what gets into it, is we start measuring the craniums with sand and other things. And so a larger cranium would tell you one thing, and a smaller would tell you another. And supposedly brain mass was what we were looking at. So I know anthropologists today are really trying to uh, take back a lot of the poor work that was put out there and make up for a lot of our bad work. <laughs> and, and now we're into an era uh, called, you know, cultural relativism, where cultures are unique and need to be considered in their own historical context, in their own cultural context, not to compare with somebody else. They're there, but different. Uh, so we're not making judgment calls on whether they're inferior or superior. Here are their aspects, here are their tenets, here, is the, here are their belief systems. And we take it for what it's worth, given those, those, uh, that information, rather than saying, oh, how do we compare it to Western European culture? How do we compare it to this or that? One of the aspects of culture, and most people like to think it's just going to the opera, but actually culture is, it, that's a tiny bit of what culture is, and I don't know about you, but I haven't been to an opera lately, and I certainly don't pass yeah. it on to my children. I'll but, be going in a few weeks. <laughs> part of, one of, the main, one of the main aspects of culture is passing whatever tenant of your society onto the next generation. That is essential to have in your definition of culture. And one of the aspects that you had talked about was how everybody here 
just thought, oh, the people in your commercial club, they are, they were taught that by their parents or their educational system. Wherever they got that idea from the previous generation that there was nobody here because that was the idea prevalent in society at the time. And so uh, that was passed down from generation to generation. And in order to change that, and I would argue that that's certainly not prevalent among most people today. Uh, Kat, you had talked about the mound builders. Even in Council Bluffs, we have 13 PW5 that established as the oldest habitation or evidence of people in this area, and yet nobody seems to acknowledge that. You made a, a point there, Troy, that uh, you don't really have to go back as far as the commercial club. Don't forget, I wrote that headline just a couple of years ago, and I, I knew better, and I just was flashed back to my 1960s upbringing that this railroad went through the middle of nowhere. I think we're lucky with anthropology and history. They're really introspective fields. So when you say stuff like that, you can go back and learn why we're saying stuff like that. When I had my classes, we worked with a working definition of culture, which was a shared belief in practices in a community. And so you had to have a certain amount sharing that belief or practice. And then when you go in ethnographically, you can even look at smaller groups, even like a nerd group at your local gaming shop can have those special practices. And that's a smaller definition of it in going into larger ones. Like America technically has a culture, but we all have subcultures within it that are going to uh, diverse. I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the driving, one of the driving forces of the idea that there was nobody here is was the American government. Uh, it's the irony that we live in a town right across from uh, Omaha where the court case that decided that Native Americans were actually indeed human beings in 1879. Up until that point, it, again, if you are not considered human, which Natives weren't by the American government, any act against them would be justified. And certainly, uh, given Manifest Destiny and lots of documentation we've talked to, i've talked uh you and i have talked i've talked in my my presentations about the united states government using lots of different methods to remove get the natives out because they certainly wanted the area for their own settlers for their expanding the country west by you know and i hate to be controversial but by the definition of the united nations the united states committed genocide against the Native American uh, peoples here. So, many, so much so that we don't even know the entire number that was here, uh, or the number of languages spoken, the number of communities, the number of ethnicities. There will, there's no way we can ever know. Uh, and, and so given that, it's easier to swallow that sort of thing if you propagate the idea that nothing was here. But that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think there's anything to add to that. <laughs> That's a great description of it. I'm sure 2022 isn't necessarily the pinnacle of civilization. In a hundred years from now, if somebody's doing a podcast or whatever they do and they've got their experts, what are people likely to say about us? Oh, I'm sure we have everything wrong. <laughs> Going to keep learning and figuring out all the different things. I think it depends on 
whether they're coming from an edict perspective or an emic perspective. Uh, an emic perspective is from within inside a culture. An etic is coming from outside the culture. Because your culture, your enculturation, everything you learn when you're growing up, even your language, shapes your thoughts and your coding system, which is language is basically a coding system for thoughts, sending messages. So that I think that has a big part to play in how somebody a hundred years from now, are they from outside our culture? Are they from inside? For instance, if you know, and, and I always like to use the metaphor of aliens coming down because they have no idea. What would they think? Looking at all the trace evidence, and again, is will there be enough trace evidence for them to, to study uh, in a hundred? You'd like to think that we make stuff that lasts, but really human beings don't. Uh, it eventually goes away. I think the more we ask these questions, the more we learn. I know I've read some stories, um, I can't remember the papers at all, it's been too long, of people asking um, mothers why knives were hidden up in places, and they thought, oh, this has to have a sacred meaning or something like that, and mom's immediately like, children, knives, they go up high, we're not going to leave these down. <laughs> so it's not this sacred thing. So as soon as we look outside or talk to other people, we learn more and more about our own cultures. Kat, you are the museum's director for the Historical Society. What role does the museum play in all of this? Has this knowledge changed your perspective of how to put a display together? Well, in my museum studies classes, we actually talked about how all of that has changed and how we're putting up displays. When you look at it, you're looking at it as something to share and educate about, I guess, as opposed to like putting a piece behind the glass. It, it was funny, you, you asked that, it's such a loaded issue because in the museum world now, there's a lot of uproar about, especially European, and it highlights everything we've been talking about. Uh, when European powers colonized several parts of the world, they would find artifacts, take them, and take them back, ship them back to Europe. Just in the British Museum. Yes, the United States did the same thing. Now they have been a little bit better, a little bit more forthcoming, a little bit quieter about returning stuff that they took to their indigenous locations. England is one of the, uh, uh, there is a large uproar about colonized countries getting their items back. And, you know, it's hard. It, it, even uh, 13 PW5 and the discussion for that, uh, when the Omaha tribe, uh, when the bones were found, when Alcerero was found, the Omaha tribe came out and said, okay, we're not technically related to these people, but we're going to make sure that their bones are treated with respect and that they're not going to be just put on display somewhere. And that kind of lies at the heart of what she's talking about. Now, how, what's the best way to do that? I mean, there are certainly a lot of angles to cover if you have an artifact or some bones. I mean, you want to educate, you want to teach, but then again, you have to respect the people that, they, that it came from as well. Like you don't want you know, pull out grandma and our ideas, you know, and talk about her 30 years from now. That's what we're doing, or we're doing to other cultures. I know at the University of Wyoming, the anthropology building there reached out to a local reservation, and yeah. the building was blessed because they didn't know what to do with some of the remains because it had been so long and poorly taken care of when it came to whose was whose. And so they blessed the whole building so they could stay there safely, and there's pieces that can come out for educational purposes only, and pieces that just remain in the repository and are just 
kept in reverence almost. So how is history being portrayed now? Have we turned the corner? Are we doing it right? You mentioned that you watch a lot of documentaries. Are you satisfied with what you're seeing? Yeah, I think we're going in the right direction. I have a podcast that I love that's Dark History, and what she specifically does is looks for things that we don't talk about in school and that we've been told are just fine and look away from. So I think more and more podcasts and videos are coming up and talking about our dirty secrets in history. Do you think that, you know, uh, do you think that it's important? Well, obviously you do, because you, 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 by your own words, you do that. Um, do you think there is a better way other than through education to maybe expedite that process? I don't know about a better way. I think maybe make the education more hands-on or even talking about the more salacious stuff because I remember in junior high and high school I loved history but I grew up watching documentaries I had no chance I had to like it or it was gonna be a really rough upbringing um, but my friends they listen because they're very nice to me and now that we're listening to these more I guess interesting information coming out and it's grabbing I think people more than just this happened here, this happened here, this happened here. But if you bring up, you know, some of the dirtier details. Now, I can't, you know, can't do that in junior high, necessarily. But maybe, like, towards your senior year, just, you know, what the uh, administration well, and, and, <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, and, and Kat, just touch on it. You have to be careful in a school setting. Yeah. Because, I mean, even imagine the authors that wrote a book. Did, I mean, now they're being banned from libraries. People are defunding libraries because... Uh, four books are in there that they disagree with. I'm always careful uh, when I talk about history and I talk about subjects and I'll say these are the facts and I say if you know I'm, there's certainly uh, you know everybody's entitled to their own opinions and everything like that but I encourage you to do your own research. But here's what happened. Is it possible that we might be going too far the other way? Amelia Bloomer uh, did a lot of good work for temperance and women's rights, but I learned the other day that her name was taken off of an award because she had a very good following. Her newspaper and her mailing list was all of the movers and shakers in this movement, and she totally ignored the racial issue. By today's standards, that makes her bad. Have we gone too far? I think that opens a whole can of worms. Um, instead of working together and grouping together throughout the years to push different things, We've been able to get communities to argue against each other. So even like the Women's March, it's you see white women at the head of that. Well, there's a lot more than just white women out there, but let's argue amongst ourselves about what's the most important thing so that way we can't get anything done. And I think that goes into that a little bit because she knew she could push, but in order to push, we have to drop a whole demographic. And instead, you could work together with a full demographic and really push even farther. Or at least in my opinion. And to support what Kat's saying, uh, in the holistic picture, really this, a lot of these arguments are a result and end result of the Constitution not being applied to everyone. It's been apportioned out a little bit at a time after horrendous fights and marches and people dying and being beaten and everything. And finally, the next group gets their chance to have equal rights afforded to them. If equal rights were afforded to everybody upon passage of the Constitution, that argument wouldn't have been exist wouldn't even have existed. So 
in essence, the, the whole idea of not including everyone in, in your government document creates all these ancillary problems. And if you look at it in context, you know, I think, I think uh, Bloomer did the best she could. She made decisions that I've never had to make based on experiences I've never experienced. Far be it from me to tar somebody's image uh, because I can't even think about what it's like to walk in their shoes. What she did do, we know, is that she advanced her cause. And she did it mostly, uh, from what I understand, nonviolently and courageously. So I guess I, I certainly wouldn't be for taking an award away from her. Like maybe the ballots, like talking about it so we know the full history and not just the pretty part of the history. Yeah. Yeah. So what piece of advice could you give our listeners if they go to a museum, they watch a documentary, pick up a, a newspaper, to keep an open mind, to not be biased? Any, any, any hints, tips you can give people? It's almost impossible. <laughs> we all have our own bias. So I guess try and look outside of yourself and just keep researching and learning because just one documentary well that's fantastic but everybody who was on that they all had biases the three of us have very different biases so even don't take my word for it go out and research and prove me wrong and i would say just you know the, the old adage you know walk a mile in somebody else's shoes try to imagine what you would do in their situation and not just the surface as kat said research it see what the context was that they were dealing with at the time. And then maybe you can make a judgment call, maybe. One more thing I would add is, uh, and, I, and I got this from Leo Tolstoy, it's not me. Leo Tolstoy talked about how history is never a singular cause. It never has one cause. It's always a web of interrelated and dynamic causal factors working together. For instance, people who do, we say, oh, this person, overcame all these challenges and conquered. That's never how it works. It's always a whole bunch of other people whose aims and goals and desires intersect happenstance or not happenstance with that person and things happen that way. It's never a single causal, causal agent. So try to rise above that easy, quick fix of looking at, oh, one singular part of history and then that's it. And also remember, everybody we read about, it's not just words on a page. These are people. And I know I have lots of flaws, and they're probably going to have lots of flaws, and we're not necessarily reading about that and understanding they made the choices that they could make with the information they had. Invite everybody to the table. So when you, know, when you were talking about when you were writing your article, if you invite everybody to the table that's there at the, you know, to the party, then nobody feels left out. And, you know, we're all humans. The Accidentally Historic podcast is produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We're on the web at thehistoricalsociety.org and on Facebook at Council Bluffs Revealed. Muriel Wagner is our president. Kat Slaughter, our museum's director. The podcast is edited and narrated by Dr. Richard Warner. Local history. Some good, some bad, and some very strange. We'll look forward to sharing more of it with you next time on Accidentally Historic.